Well, Mark's gospel has been described in its entirety as a passion story. That word passion is being used in its old sense, a story of suffering with an extended introduction. Because unlike the other three gospels, an entire half of Mark's gospel is devoted to Jesus heading to the cross and his uh, death. And Mark's gospel, as we've been talking about all along through it, has this two focuses. Mark, on the one hand, is seeking to elicit a response in those who read his gospel to answer the question, who is Jesus? And the other response he's seeking to invoke is in those who are Christ followers. He's saying, this is what it means to follow Jesus. And both of these concerns are woven together in the very end, as we uh, read here. Uh, The outline for this morning's sermon, uh, the women, Joseph, and then God. So if you would, uh, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 15. We're going to read from verses 40 uh, to 16.8. And if you would, would you stand? Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we ask in your kindness that you might uh, grant to the one who speaks and to those who listen all the help that we need. Thank you for your glorious gospel. May you allow us eyes to see how all of this is good news for us today and good news for the world. For we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Verse 40. There were also women looking on from a distance among those were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the Younger and of Josie and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he'd learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Yossi, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. 
you seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Thus ends God's word. You may take your seats. Before Tom Clancy's novel, The Hunt for the Red October, was a film, it was a book. And one summer I borrowed a copy from the public library, and I just became immediately engrossed in the story. And I came to the end of the pages, but it didn't feel like the end of the story. Uh, I was just left hanging. The Red October, this submarine, was still being hunted at sea by uh, the Soviet Navy. And I was just puzzled over how the book could end that way. And so I I took it back to the library, mentioned this uh, to the person at the desk, and the librarian was very apologetic. And in a few days, I had a new and complete copy. and, and I, can, I can say with certainty uh, that th- what I've read to you from Mark's gospel is, in fact, his ending. Uh, and verses 9 to 20, which are printed in your Bible, is not something that Mark uh, wrote. Um, the evidence for this is overwhelming, and almost every conservative scholar of Mark's gospel would tell you this, that As the notes in your Bible probably indicate, the earliest and best manuscripts don't contain uh, this, um, that, in fact, uh, many of the early church fathers said that Mark's gospel ended in verse uh, 8, as well as many of the ancient translations of the New Testament. The simplest explanation for all of this is that Mark didn't write uh, those uh, words, And in fact, those words were drawn from other Gospels and a little bit from the book of Acts. Why would someone write that? Well, they didn't feel like Mark uh, was complete. They felt like it needed an ending and it was missing. Now, among believing scholars, there are just three possibilities. Either Mark got interrupted and didn't finish. He intended to finish, but he never finished or that uh, the ending Mark uh, wrote was uh, lost. And if we had it, it would read a lot like Matthew, and that's what other people thought. And so they crafted one. Or this is, in fact, what Mark intends. Now, my purpose today is to open to you uh, this text as Mark wrote it, not as we might wish it uh, to be. This text, as we have it, is filled with good uh, news. And I hope to persuade you that, in fact, it ends exactly the way Mark intended, in keeping with the things he's been saying all along. So I know it may not seem to you as good news, so just just come along with me here. Mark begins in verse 40, this last section, mentioning the name of women. 
Three times in what I write to you, women are named. And uh, names are unusual in Mark's gospel. Not very many people are named as people. They're just, we're just told about a man or a, a woman. And these women are witnesses to the most important events of the gospel. That Christ died, he was buried, and he was raised from the dead. They're witnesses of the empty tomb and the words of the angels. Now, this is really, really surprising because in the first century, um, the testimony of women was not something that could be entered in a court of law. In fact, we have prayers uh, the Jewish men uh, prayed that uh, included a phrase like this. God, I am thankful that I was not born a slave, a woman, or an infidel. There was a deep chauvinism in much of the Judaism of Jesus' uh, day. But consider the weight of their testimony. He died. Now, they watched him die from a distance. And they testify that he really died. Now, this shouldn't be very surprising because the Romans, for hundreds of years, had crucified hundreds of thousands of people. They knew what they were doing. And there's not a single report of anybody surviving crucifixion. There are a few reports of people being taken down early, and they die within a day. Because though injuries they've sustained in being flogged and crucified are so uh, great that no one could survive that. They testify that he was buried. Now, Joseph goes and requests the body. He handles the corpse like the centurion. He knows this is a corpse. It's not a living person. And the women watch as Joseph does this. They know exactly uh, where Jesus is uh, placed. They know the tomb. And uh, they uh, had to wait for a day before they could administer what we might call last rites. Uh, they would perfume the, the decomposing uh, body. That was a part of what normally would take place. But for them, because it was Sabbath, they, they spent the day in grief. It was a day of loss uh, for them, a bitter day. But uh, loyally, they travel very early in the morning uh, to the tomb. Mark adds that it was after sunrise. He wants us to know that they weren't mistaken. They didn't go to the wrong uh, tomb. They knew which tomb, and they went there. And as they went, death was on their minds. They went uh, to anoint him to perform these last rites uh, that otherwise would have been performed. And they went with death on their minds. Uh, they uh, hadn't thought clearly through what they would do. Uh, they knew there was a very large stone over the mouth of this uh, tomb. In fact, there were a few tombs that date to this period uh, that fit this description exactly. And uh, they hadn't thought through how it would get moved. This tomb so weighed a great deal. It would take several men to do it. But they didn't ask any men to accompany them. Um, and then they're very surprised by what they encounter there. The tomb is open, 
and a young man who is in fact an angel is present. And the angel greets them as angels do in all the Bible and says, don't be afraid. Um, And he tells them what they couldn't know and what they didn't expect, that the crucified one has been raised from the dead. They didn't go to the tomb thinking, we'll see that Jesus has risen from the dead. That didn't enter their minds at all. And they tremble, and they're bewildered, and they fled the tomb. This is the scariest thing that's ever happened to them in their lives. They weren't hallucinating. They didn't find what they expected to find. Now, if you're a skeptic, or you ever talk to a skeptic about uh, the evidence uh, for Christ's resurrection, uh, they may say, is that all you've got? Is that the best thing uh, you can say? Well, it's not proof. In fact, the resurrection is not something that can be proved, it's uh, revealed. God doesn't provide uh, proof uh, to make certain that the resurrection took uh, place, to set it beyond doubt. Uh, There, in fact, is no proof that would compel uh, belief. Belief doesn't arise uh, from miracles and works of power. But God does offer to us evidence and shows us that it is not irrational or unreasonable to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, those are the facts of the gospel, but here's how this is gospel uh, for us. God chose these women who had no status. In other words, he chose what would be regarded as nobodies to witness these events. And God still loves to choose nobodies, the things that are not, uh, people who have no status. There was a highly skilled Chinese uh, surgeon who was working in Yemen. While on vacation, he had a diving accident and severely injured uh, his spinal column and it resulted in a uh, very serious infection. Now, he was well-known and much-loved in China, and so uh, uh, it was uh, thought that he would uh, die, and so he was airlifted to his beloved homeland. But he began uh, to recover and started to receive uh, physical therapy. And his therapy, uh, therapist was a Japanese woman who spoke English as he did. And over time, as they talked, she eventually gave him a copy of Johnny Erickson's uh, life story. If you don't know Johnny Erickson, she was a young uh, uh, woman who in her teens had a diving accident that left her a quadriplegic. Well, the man uh, read the book. Uh, It uh, changed his relationship uh, with God. And uh, through a friend of a friend at the embassy, he got a hold of uh, Johnny and friends. And he got permission to translate the book into simplified uh, Chin- Chinese. And then he convinced the Chinese government, he, had such, uh, he was so prominent, he convinced the government to print this book. And so it was that uh, Johnny was invited 
uh, to the book's dedication, which was held at the University of Beijing. And the president of the university was there, and is, uh, that during the dedication, uh, he and other party officials commended her uh, for the, her fortitude and courage and strength of spirit. And uh, she said, my story is not a story about human courage and fortitude. It's a story about a man who died in my place and rose from the dead. And it's because of him that I've been able to face this uh, the way that I have. Now, what an unlikely thing that God takes a woman who's a quadriplegic. She is so weak that she needs someone to help her do everything, almost everything you take for granted, just uh, doing. And he has her speak of his existence in the most unlikely of places. God delights in taking weak things to make himself known. He takes pleasure in using people who have nothing to offer him. In fact, most of his church is not composed of the smart, uh, the strong, the brave, the famous, the influential, the powerful, uh, the wealthy. Most of the church is filled with very ordinary people like you and me. And friends, God can use you. God can accomplish through your life what you would never expect to do. But it may be that you need to have a change of thought about yourself. I know I had to go through an enormous change of thought. I still sometimes have to revisit this, but there was a season in my life when I was convinced I had a lot to offer God. Uh, uh, I, I was convinced that uh, my hard work, uh, my faithfulness, uh, my learning were all things uh, that meant I was eminently uh, useful to God. Of course, I didn't see how much pride there was in all of that. And God put me in a place for years that was a place of uh, humility, really humiliation, a place where I felt a profound sense of failure in what was taking place. And I can look back and say God was showing me that these things I think were strengths really aren't the things that he uses. He delights in using weakness. Now the gospel is seen uh, in the life of Joseph in a way uh, that might not be immediately apparent. As uh, Mark uh, brings in Joseph, he inserts the story of Joseph between his accounts of the women. He's created another one of these sandwiches that he does repeatedly in the gospel. And he tends us uh, to put these two pieces together, uh, to eat the whole, uh, the whole sandwich. And when you do that, what you start to see is there's a contrast uh, between the bold actions of Joseph and the passive looking on of the women. Discipleship is more than looking on or gazing. In fact, uh, uh, four times we're told in the text I read uh, that the women were looking on. And throughout Mark's gospel, there are many, many times in which uh, language about looking on is mentioned. 
and it's almost always that people uh, look, but they can't see. They hear, but they don't understand. And these women are not gazing with uh, faith. They're, they're loyal to Jesus, but they're standing back. They're at a distance. In fact, the very word Mark uh, chooses, he uses elsewhere uh, to describe a, a kind of hesitant, fearful uh, uh, ob- observation. Why does it take courage for Joseph to ask for Jesus' body? Well, the Romans designed crucifixion to utterly humiliate and shame their enemies. The only, usually the lowest of the low got crucified. They crucified hundreds of thousands of slaves. And it was a way of saying, this is what happens to you when you uh, resist your place in Roman society. Of course, they did this uh, to these men that Jesus has crucified because they also were involved in resisting the rule of Rome. They weren't common thieves. They were insurrectionists. And so to go and ask the Roman governor for the body of someone who's been crucified because he is a threat uh, to Rome is to run exactly opposite of what the Romans did. They left people up on the cross to say, this person doesn't deserve the dignity and honor of a burial. But Joseph is undoubtedly looked on uh, by Pilate, because he's a member of the Sanhedrin, as someone who agreed uh, with his uh, death, and so was a way beyond uh, suspicion. But Mark also tells us that he's a covert uh, disciple, uh, that uh, he was awaiting for the kingdom of God. This is more than he's awaiting for something in the far distant future. He's waiting for the kingdom that Jesus has announced. Joseph, in other words, is a model disciple. Now, the women are not looking upon what's taken place in faith. All the reactions tell you they didn't, they weren't trusting that Jesus would rise uh, from the dead. Discipleship uh, to Jesus is more than simply loyally looking on to him. It involves bold action. It was a risky move that Joseph uh, took. And in my experience, many, many Christians, they're a lot more like these women. They're loyal. They, they might come to church uh, regularly. They might open their Bibles. But they're mostly just gazing at Jesus. They don't take any risk uh, for him. Uh, have you taken a risk for Jesus? Are you willing to risk uh, for him? Perhaps one of the primary reasons we don't risk is, well, we have fears. We're, we're afraid uh, to risk. History is full of men and women who said no to destructive fear and changed the world. Just imagine if the Apostle Paul had decided that uh, he wouldn't go on these missionary journeys because of the resistance or rejection uh, he might experience. He'd rather just stay home than do that and take the message uh, to the world. Or imagine Rosa Parks accepting the demand of the bus driver that she give up her seat for a white person. Well, because she didn't want to 
create a stir. Or Nelson Mandela uh, looking the other way when he witnessed and experienced uh, the evil of apartheid in South Africa. Saying, I, I don't want to make a fuss, I don't want to upset you know, uh, people by pointing this out. For 27 years he was imprisoned and he brought apartheid uh, onto the world's radar. And he played a key role in ending it in his nation. Or Malalia uh, Yosefzaya. Imagine her quitting school because of the death threats. Instead of becoming the advocate for uh, the education of girls and women around the world. Just imagine yourself. God has entrusted to each of you, to each of us, some unique mission, some part to play in our callings to advance his kingdom. Imagine that being just held hostage to your fears, your irrational worries, your fear of failure or harm or rejection. If you don't fulfill the mission Christ has given you, who will? What does that really look like? What might a risk look like for you? Well, it might be taking time to build a relationship with somebody you would otherwise never talk to. Somebody who might think very differently uh, than uh, you. Somebody you just politely avoid. It might uh, be going to the local jail or the hospital. Or, or it might be inviting several of your unchurched neighbors to your home for a barbecue. Or it might be being able to summarize your uh, testimony about what Christ has done in uh, a minute or two and looking for the opportunity in a, in a conversation that takes a spiritual turn to share it, to say it to somebody. I don't know what that risk looks like for you, but I'm con confident of this, that the real embrace of the gospel involves a willingness to act boldly. Otherwise, you're going to miss out. Now, the gospel ends with God having the last word. It's God who has the last word in the gospel. Now, I know the gospel seems very unsatisfying, especially when you read it uh, in relation to the others, you know. Uh, the women are not bold. There's no joy. Uh, there are no resurrection appearances, and that makes it feel like there's just no closure. Uh, all of those things happen in uh, Matthew and Luke and John. No, in fact, the women are uh, fearful. They fail to obey the angel's instructions and to go and speak to the disciples. Mark leaves us at the empty tomb, now, they disobey, but all the readers of Mark's gospel in Rome, they know that the women will eventually obey. They know that Jesus will appear uh, to the disciples. Mark's done this on purpose. He stopped right here. And this is what he's saying by doing that. That the gospel is that human failure will not have the last word. The gospel is this, that human failure will not have the last word. 
God's purposes cannot be undone by our failures. Let the words of the angel uh, uh, ring in your ears. Don't be afraid. God has raised him from the dead. Go tell his disciples who are doing what? They're hiding in fear. Uh, uh, Jesus says, uh, he says, Jesus is going to keep his promises. He's calling them back to Galilee where it all started. He's going to renew uh, their call as his disciples. Uh, He's going uh, to renew uh, his uh, commission to Peter. Jesus keeps all his promises. He promised Peter and Andrew that he would make them fisher of men. He promised Peter that those who make sacrifices to follow him will receive a hundredfold more and in the age to come eternal life. He promised James and John that they would be baptized with the baptism with which he was baptized. He promised that before the end of human history, all the nations would hear the gospel. He assured his disciples that he would drink once more the fruit of the vine with them in the kingdom of God. And he promised the high priest and the council that they would see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming in the clouds of heaven. Friends, Jesus keeps all his promises. He's made many, and every one of them he's made to you, he will keep. You need to take this in, that despite human failure, God's at work. It's the power of God that matters. Our God is a faithful covenant-keeping God. And this ought to move us to a place of joy. It ought to make us deliriously uh, happy because we know if we're t- uh, that if we're totally honest, we fall short. We, we don't do all that we're commanded uh, to do. But Jesus, instead of rejecting us, he doesn't reject the 11 or the women. He summons them back into fellowship with them himself. He calls them uh, to follow, and he assures them that all his promises will be fulfilled. Jesus has not changed. He knows the worst about me and about you, and he's set me free. And if you understand the gospel, he'll set you free from the need to defend yourself, the need to prove that you're right, the need uh, to show everybody that you have something that God needs. If you understand what Mark's saying at the end and you understand the gospel, then there's no reason to fear, but rather we should follow. Will you follow him? Will you say yes to Jesus once again today? Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, seal to our hearts and minds what you, by the Spirit, intend for us to hear at the end of Mark's Gospel. 
Fill us with courage and displace our fear. Displace our doubt and fill us with faith. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.